The kids already have seen me come up. They're headed over to Transformation Station. My name is uh, Pastor John Reddy. I'm privileged to be one of the elders serving here at Redemption Hill Church. It's my privilege this morning to just bring our attention to this morning's scripture. As you know, except for a break or two right around Easter, we've been carefully working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it's really been, I think, a real interesting, helpful, useful experience, even for me personally. The first three chapters, we know, was dense and rich and um, full of profound truths that we need to sort of wrestle with. But beginning in chapter four, we started to turn as Paul moved his language from descriptive to language that was instructive. In, in uh, chapter four, verse one, he wrote, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, he begins to say, belief isn't true belief until you actually begin to place it into practice. And he uses a lot of word pictures from that point on to help us understand what a walk might look like as a follower of Christ. Um, in chapter uh, four, Pastor Chastine came along and he pointed out this familiar rhythm that we've been talking about of putting off the old self and renewing our minds and putting on the new self. And, and why is that important? Paul says that we're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so we're to do this as we obey the commands of Christ and we sort of imitate his life by putting on the actions and the attitudes of the one that we follow, namely Jesus Christ. In chapter five last week, uh, Pastor uh, Tanner came along and he pointed out that in order to be imitators of God, we needed to do two things. We needed to walk in love with Jesus as our model, and we also needed to walk as children of light, especially in those areas of our lives that were once domains of darkness, but now they're exposed in the light, and now what emerges is good and right and true. And so we get to this morning scripture, Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 21, and we're going to encounter for the sixth time the Apostle Paul's use of this concept of walking as sort of an instruction for the Christian life. Again and again, he conveys a deep concern about how our lifestyles as followers of Jesus, how it lines up with our identity, our new identity as a follower in Christ. And so make no mistake, Paul says, we're, to, we're called to live in accordance with this new identity. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have one, there's Bibles immediately underneath most of your seats. We're going to look at chapter 5. In, in your pew Bibles, it's page 978. Paul writes, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In this text, the Apostle Paul introduces two more contrasts, two more things that he's going to use as models to help us understand 
this gospel walk that he's been trying to hammer into us. He's going to introduce the concept of wisdom and compare it to foolishness. And he's going to look at drunkenness and compare it to being filled with the Spirit. And by the time we finish this morning, what I'm hoping is that we're all collectively going to agree that we should walk in God's wisdom, and we should walk by his Spirit as we together glorify Jesus Christ. So to get to that point, I'm just ask if you'll pray with me. Just bow your heads, and, and would you just repeat after me while I pray? Heavenly Father, in your wisdom and by your Spirit, Speak to our hearts and change our lives. Amen. My first encouragement is this. We should walk in God's wisdom and glorify Jesus. So what does it look like to walk in God's wisdom? And, and how should that affect our Christian walk? And in verses 15 to 17, I think Paul offers at least four really quick insights that are worth resting on. First, where to give careful attention. Paul clearly exhorts us to look carefully, carefully, I think accurately, then how you should walk. How we conduct our day-to-day -day lives should reflect the transformation that God has been working in us, and it should reflect the new nature that we have in Christ. We should be, Paul says, vigilant, awake, aware. We should not be the opposite, apathetic, or asleep, or God forbid, ignorant. As our minds give assent to who the Lordship of Jesus is, our actions and our attitudes need to be held accountable. We need to have checkpoints built into our lives so that we can be certain that we're not just slipping carefully into the complacency that sometimes, I don't know about you, but the culture and the society that I live in and walk in Sometimes it can actually numb me, for it surrounds me. And honestly, sometimes I have to do that check because the Scriptures teach that even my own heart can be deceptive. And so it's wise, Paul says, that we build these checkpoints or these rhythms and that they're intentional and that they're focused so that our spiritual walk can be assessed for the progress that we're making in our journey. Simply put, there are times when we, as followers of Christ, need to think about how we are walking. We need to think about what we are doing rather than just, may I say, sleepwalk through our spiritual journey. And so this morning, we're going to have a great opportunity for that. It's a, it's a rhythm that we do here at the church. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper shortly uh, after this sermon ends. And many times we encourage all of us to seize that moment as a checkpoint, to stop and to consider, Lord, is there some place in my walk with you that maybe isn't quite right? And so I encourage you, not only like we do that as a rhythm for Sundays with Lord's Supper, but look carefully and find the places in your life where you can do that, take advantage of that, not just today when we do the Lord's Supper, but every day, because every day is a day for our Christian walk. Secondly, Paul says that we need to be careful. We need to choose what I'm going to call the right wisdom. Now, some of you are familiar with this. Published in 1916, Bostonian poet Robert Frost, he, he finished a famous poem. It's called The Road Not Taken, and he explored 
the idea of choice. And he wrote it like this when he finished his poem. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Now in our culture, this imagery of choice is common. Many of us, I think if you grew up in Massachusetts, you sort of had to read this in high school and some of you thought you were suffering and you get to suffer one more time this morning. But oftentimes when I go to graduations, this is what's held out to graduates of high school and held out, right? I see some of you guys nodding because we're in graduation season. But I got news for Robert Frost. This imagery around choice, it didn't start with him. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah beat him to the punch thousands of years ago when he recorded this in Jeremiah 6.16. He said, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. You see, as God was speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, he made it clear that there was a good way and it was an ancient way. And it was a way that if it was followed, it led to rest and peace. And so I would submit to you that the wise person asks for this pathway. And they consider this pathway. And then they travel this pathway, for that will be the pathway of wisdom. Now it's important that we get a grasp and a handle on how the Bible sort of defines wisdom. Because I gotta be honest, there's a great difference between the way that our culture considers wisdom and the way that the revealed word of God defines wisdom. And so the, the, if I could get you to just get your hands on one thing this morning around wisdom, it would be this. That wisdom originates with and it flows from God. It is in fact one of his attributes. It's not generated from the collective insights of any one man. You see, sometimes as human beings, I don't know if this is characteristic in your life, but we act unwisely, sometimes just because we don't have all the facts. We don't have all of the information that perhaps we might need to reach a good decision. But remember, God has access to all facts, all information, all circumstances. He understands the trajectory of history. He knows how it ends. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all things. His judgments, the scriptures say, are made wisely. He sees all things in his perfect perspective. He's not limited like we are. He is not constrained by the things that hem us in. He is not distorted in his vision. And so that means that as followers of Christ, we can go to him in prayer and we can go with great confidence and we can seek his wisdom. And if, perhaps, he doesn't grant something that we pray, it might be that our view on the matter is really an optical illusion. It may be that we do not have the right point of view. Wisdom, ultimately, is found in him, and therefore, the wise look to God for their ultimate answers. The wise listen to the word that he's revealed in us. The wise submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus, who, by the way, the Father sent that we could be rescued from foolishness, even the most extreme form of foolishness, and that is to rebel against and to reject 
the very one who made us and continues to love us. The Bible teaches that the wise should orient themselves towards him and his ways. And once they do, the wise, listen church, the wise will then take the next step, the wise step to know him, to love him, and to obey him according to what he has chosen to reveal. Paul tells us that we are to walk as unwise, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, finding your way around the roadways of Boston can be kind of confusing. Wouldn't you agree? This is actually, I don't know if you can see it a little bit better over here. This is a real road sign that I encountered um, driving through Boston. And I, I could not tell where I was supposed to go. It looks like there's two choices to me, but then it's cluttered and distorted and I had a hard time and I'm proud to say that I just didn't drive straight ahead. I did make a choice to go right or to go left. You see, we should travel carefully in wisdom so that we can see the dangers that confuse us and actually threaten us. Things like temptation to sin or, or the weakness of the flesh in a world that we know has fallen. Even opposition from spiritually dark forces that are, even as we speak, waging war against God and his kingdom. And the reason why we need to pay attention to those directions is because we need to navigate this broken world. So here's just one suggestion that maybe, I, maybe you'll find will help you to grow wiser. Uh, consider setting aside some time in order to read and reflect upon the book of Proverbs. Simple, doable, you could start today. In its opening, the book makes it clear that the audience is oriented towards those who desire to be wise. In fact, youth were required to work and read and pay attention and to be trained in the skill of choosing the right course of action and then connecting it to its desired result. See, it's full of insights on how to rightfully view God and his general principles for living. And the different results when, that the wise have when they choose correctly, and in contrast, the results that the fool has when he chooses poorly. Proverbs has 31 chapters, so you could decide to perhaps read a chapter a day for most months, and you can immerse yourself in wisdom for living. Well, let's think about the third attribute, time. Let's consider time for a moment. The Apostle Paul goes on to exhort us that the wise who walk are also about making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And I think on the simplest level, all of us can agree that time is one of the most precious commodities that's available to us. We live in Boston, and sometimes when I ask somebody, hey, you know, how are you doing? I, I usually hear back, oh man, I'm wicked busy. Right? Wicked busy. The pace is tough here. But as followers of Christ, Paul says that we're to weigh our use of time. You see, let's do the math. There are 24 hours in a day. Everybody agree? Some of you aren't sure. Okay, there are. Let me, let me assure you. Seven days a week. And so that means every week there's 168 hours that every single one of us get a chance to choose how to spend 
I have 168 hours this week. AP, you have 168 hours this week. Governor Baker and Big Poppy have 168 hours available to them this week. The difference will be how do they choose and how do we choose to spend that gift. Here at Redemption Hill Church, we often talk about meaningful, active church membership. And we take it seriously, and when somebody decides that they would like to be a member of the church, we actually have this series of commitments that we ask them to think about. We call it our member covenant. And, and we do it so that we are all oriented in the same gospel community mission direction. And one of the things that we pledge to each other is because the gospel calls us to be a part of God's mission of redemption, we will steward our time to further the mission of God through the church. See, there's an intentionality and a focus to the way that we as members come together and direct our time. The characteristics of our walk is that we will manage our time so that it can be used by God to further his agenda, not to further our agenda. And in honesty, one of the hardest parts about that is to do that, it's going to require some self-discipline. And, you know, if we're honest, how many of us love self-discipline? Not, not most of us. It's interesting that Paul uh, follows that up with a qualifier on his encouragement about time. He says, because the days of evil. Now, you might ask, John, what does Paul mean by that? And, and I'm going to suggest the following. You see, much of Judaism had a deep conviction that God's people lived in an age that was characterized by an abundance of evil. It was dominated by powerful, supernatural powers that were recognized to be at war with God and his people. And until the Messiah came and subdued this sort of widespread lawlessness against God's authority, every day for the Jew had the potential for evil. It's sort of like, as we say in the basketball court, evil was in their face, right up and guarding them close. Well, we know as Christians that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been looking for. And that on the cross at Calvary, a cross that he willingly took upon himself, Satan was defeated, sin was conquered, and death was overcome by the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, despite this apparent victory, we still live in a world that is characterized by evil and brokenness. You see, if we're honest, even as devout followers of Jesus, we experience trial and tribulation. We experience sickness and death, grief and loss. Can anybody here relate to that? Has anybody here, a follower of Jesus, experienced any pain, any suffering, any trial? So how do we make sense of that pain and that struggle? Well, I'd like you to just consider for a second a personal story, the story of my two grandfathers. Um, on my mother's side is my grandpa Percy, on my father's side is my grandpa Reddy. Both of them were able-bodied men during the outbreak of World War II, and so both of them, like many men of their day, joined the military. My uh, grand grandpa Percy in the Canadian Armed Forces, my grandfather Reddy in the U.S. Army. And both of them, even though my parents had never met, uh, they had yet to meet, both of them um, landed coincidentally on northern Normandy on a famous day, June 6, 1944, what we call D-Day. And so for those of you that didn't pay attention in history class in high school, 
just a reminder that this World War II thing that was going on, the entire attention of the world was at edge. And D-Day was a day where tens and hundreds of thousands of U.S., Canadian, and British military landed in order to um, overcome German-occupied Europe. Looking back, my Grampy Percy was wounded almost immediately, and uh, he was shipped back to Canada, and he rested in Canada for the rest of the war. But my grandfather, Reddy, he landed, he survived that beachhead. He actually traveled through France, ultimately to Berlin, and a major day of surrender. Historians looking back at D-Day today acknowledge that when that foothold was made on the beaches of Normandy, for all intensive purposes, the war was over. That was the pivot point for the whole European theater. On that day, you could have calculated out a matter of time before every last skirmish would be played out. But it was clear in the minds of the Allied command that victory had actually been achieved on that day. My grandfather Reddy didn't know that. He actually had to dig some foxholes he participated in a, in a famous battle called the Battle of the Bulge. It was in, De in December. He froze, and as far as he was concerned, he was in the middle of a life-or-death struggle. He wasn't sitting back in headquarters knowing that the, that the uh, war was actually over. This example might help us to understand sometimes, I think, the tension that we feel as Christians. See, we live in a time when the kingdom of God has been ushered in by Jesus' earthly ministry. However, until the final day of judgment when all of creation is fully restored and made right, we live in a world where the days of evil can be experienced by those who are struggling against the kingdom of God as they combat those that are struggling and desiring the advance of the kingdom of God. And it's sort of the illustration I tell my kids is, it's like a snake that's been mortally wounded, and yet it still wriggles with enough life in order to bite its venom back into you. So in the meantime, those of us that are paying attention to the days of evil, we sometimes will witness and sometimes experience the harsh realities of this ambiguous time because we're caught between. Just like my Grampy Reddy had to duck his head into a frozen foxhole, there are times when we're, as devout believers, still going to encounter the strains and struggles of living in this broken world. I appreciated this week when Jonathan Mitchell, he sort of wrote our Sunday prep. It's on our website if you don't... Uh, uh, if you take a moment and sort of look at it, but it gets our hearts ready for Sunday worship. And he shared a prayer from a devotional called The Valley of Vision. This is what it read. Teach me the happy art of attending to things temporal with a mind intent on things eternal. And that's the perspective that Paul is trying to get us to see here. So as followers of Christ, we need to walk wisely and we need to manage our time understanding the times that we live in are both dangerous, but they're also full of opportunity, which brings us to our fourth point. We need to understand God's will. He goes on to say, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In this verse, the Apostle Paul gives another sort of angle on the difference between unwise and wise. Proverbs 10.23 says it like this, a fool finds pleasure in evil conduct, but a man of understanding delights in wisdom. 
And if you take that study that I recommended earlier and start working your way through the Proverbs, you're going to find that the Proverbs tell us a lot about what a fool looks like. A fool's lazy, has an uncontrolled tongue, lies, commits slander, quarrels, quick tempers, proud, hates knowledge, despises advice, resists correction, is completely reckless. See, at the root of it, a fool has no regard for the natural and the predictable consequences of their attitudes and their choices and their actions. And if we're really honest, and if you've ever been around somebody that you feel acts like that, and maybe that somebody was you, you'd admit it's not a very pretty picture. Paul tells us to put that off. And instead, he says, we need to live like this. He says, discern the Lord's will, understand it. And in understanding, it's more than just simply having an intellectual idea of what God's will is. Understanding actually involves applying the knowledge that we learn, taking what we know to be true, arriving at real insight, and then acting upon that real insight. That's what the Apostle Paul says is real understanding. There is a connection between our head and our hands for action. And so sometimes I, I, I meet with uh, teenagers and they say, well, how does that connection work? Um, you were a teenager, you probably know sometimes it's confusing. How do I connect what's in my head and, and what's in my hands? Proverbs 2, 1 through 9 gives us some insights. And I've excerpted, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I've pulled some excerpts. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, applying your heart to understanding, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, for the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. You see, there's a connection between our head and knowledge and to our hands and feet for action. And it's made when our hearts are energized by understanding who God is and the discernment that he begins to give us, as we're going to learn in a moment, in and by and through his spirit. Paul says, uh, prays actually, very early in this letter to the Ephesians, this, that the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you what? The spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. See, God wants us to understand his will. He does not, now listen everybody, he does not want to play a game of hide and seek with us. His heart, his desire, is that we would know his overall will for all of humanity and his creation, but that we would also understand the specifics of our very lives. And so if we set ourselves towards understanding who he is and what he asks, we will find success in understanding what his will is in general and what his will is in specific. It's one of the benefits of developing a rhythm of word and prayer. You hear us talk about it here at RHC all the time. See, if you consider the investment of your time as an investment for understanding God's overall will and an investment even in the specific will as it relates to your decision-making, it may be, honestly, that you might feel a little more motivated to set that time aside because as we get to know him and his heart and who he is, he will reward us by giving us greater discernment around what he desires. This brings me to my second encouragement. 
We should walk by his spirit and likewise glorify Jesus. And in order to help, uh, help us, Paul uses another word picture. He compares being drunk with wine to being filled with the spirit. And first he writes this as a negative or as a warning. And he says, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. My guess is that all of us have a sense of what being drunk with wine could look like. Um, some of us have struggled with that issue. Some of us have been raised in homes or live with somebody that struggles with that issue. Some of us just, you know, watch movies and TV and we can see it for ourselves. And one of the most obvious signs of being filled with alcohol is an inability to walk properly in a straight line. You know the classic scene where somebody's pulled over because they're driving? What's the standard test, right? Walk 10 steps, maybe touch your nose. They have no control over where they're going and how their steps are going to fall. Paul goes on to actually expand this idea of drunkenness and he calls it debauchery. It's, I challenge you to work that word into some conversation coming up. You almost never hear it in today's society, but really just think in terms of a complete surrender to unbridled, uncontrolled passions, the type that if that person were sober, they probably wouldn't make. So take it to that extreme. And Paul says that we are not to function like that. I also think that perhaps in the back of Paul's mind as he's using this illustration with the Ephesians is some aspects of pagan worship because he's actually writing this letter to, to Christians that are living in and around Ephesus, which was a major, major, major center of pagan religious worship. And oftentimes, some of the cultic practices involved being drunk in order to be communing with the gods that they offered. And so, honestly, some of the hearers of Ephesians would have understood what Paul was talking about because that was a life that they had moved out of. Either way, it's clear that Paul says that we're to put off that way of living, that we're to renew our minds, and we're to put on a new life in Christ. We are to displace something so that we can replace something. Sanctification is that process, and it can be a lifelong process that starts with our conversion. And if I can borrow that D-Day analogy I used a little bit earlier, while the turning point in that battle had been decided on the beaches of Normandy, and the outcome was sure, there were still skirmishes. There were still mopping up operations. And sometimes that's what it's like growing in Christ, that we've got these skirmishes that we're going to walk our way through. And so Paul follows this warning with something that's positive. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is the only instance in all of Paul's writings where he uses this particular phraseology. And truthfully, if I'm honest, there's some debate in Christian circles around precisely what this means, but I think I'd like to share with you a few thoughts and I think we can get, get to the heart of the matter. See, I think Paul's drawing upon a common image that he used earlier in the book of Ephesians and it would have been familiar to anyone who had read the Old Testament. In some instances in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is said to come upon or to fill a chosen person, and that person was filled by God's initiative. It was his decision. It was his choice, and it was usually to fulfill a very specific task or 
uh, to be used as a very specific instrument, a divine instrument, so to speak. It might be issuing a prophecy. It might be leading God's people into battle. It might be actually to construct the temple where God said that his spirit would ultimately reside as a place of worship. In fact, the Israelites had been told that once the temple was constructed, God himself would fill that temple with his glory. God's reach, however, would go beyond just those temple walls. For he promised that he was going to give a new spirit. It would be his spirit, and it would transcend all boundaries. And so the giving of this new spirit that was once limited to individuals that were commissioned to take on God-ordained tasks would be corporate in nature. In other words, he was going to raise up a covenant people that would worship him in spirit and in truth. This morning, I don't have enough time to go into that deeply, but you can look back in chapters like Ezekiel 36 or Isaiah 63, and you can see how God is making this promise. And today, those of us that are gathered here and those across the world that are confessing Jesus as Lord and coming together and worship him, they are in fact the church, that new covenant community. And so we know that upon confession and, and repentance and faith placed in Christ, we are instantly adopted by God into his family, this new, this new community, and we know, listen, it's important that we get this, we know that when that happens, he places his spirit into the heart of the believer as a seal, as a promise, as a deposit of that adoption. If you confess Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior, you have the Spirit of God indwelling in you today, and collectively, we represent the Spirit of God filling his temple, the church. What God desires now is that that Christian community and the individual believers that make up that community to manifest, to show to be able to put on display God's spirit presence within us in ever-increasing fullness. Listen to how the Apostle Paul described this to the Christians that were in Galatia. He said, but I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And he goes on to say, now the works of the flesh are, and he lists them all. I warn you, as I warned you before, for those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the things that we're to put off. But the fruit of the Spirit, what are we to put on? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Does the world need to see the spirit of the living God manifested through the putting on of these characteristics which flow from God himself? And I think you would agree with me. The answer is yes. See, in today's passage, drunkenness is linked to foolishness. Being filled with the Spirit is linked to wisdom. 
It's a function of increasing Christian maturity. The church is God's new temple. It's his new creation. And we need to live lives where we do not actually grieve the Holy Spirit who God has placed in our midst. Now, I'm going to get a little bit grammatical with you. I, I think I usually don't do this, but I think it's helpful, so I'm going to ask you to bear with me. Remember I told you at the very beginning that this unique usage of Paul in being filled with the Spirit was really the only time he organized his thoughts this way. Well, the verb that he uses, it's worth paying attention to because oftentimes there's a lot of confusion around it. There's three aspects I want to think about. First of all, the verb is be filled. It's in what we call the imperative mood. In other words, it's a command that we are to obey. It's not actually an option. Second, this verb be filled, it's in the present tense. All that means is that it's an ongoing, it's a continuous reality. It's not just a once-for-all event. And so it might be helpful for us to think of it as keep on being filled. And then third, and this is, I think, critical, it's in the passive voice. And all that means is that we don't fill ourselves. Rather, we receive the Spirit's fullness. We're filled by Him. We, the church, are His temple, and He desires to manifest His glory in the midst of His people as He makes that deposit. It's, it can be, for some, sort of a strange combination of ideas, a command that involves being passive, Paul's trying to help us see two things. First, we are to be active in the experience of filling, and I'm going to describe that in a moment, because we're not just robots. But this activity is to be something that we are receptive to what he is going to do. And so the way that we obey this command to be filled with the Spirit is ultimately by responding to the Word of Christ. See, we need to actively make room for the influence of the Word. We need to actively give our minds to the truth of the Word. We need to actively surrender our hearts to the teaching of the Word. We need to actively commit our wills to the obedience of what the Word instructs. And as we do that, when we actively choose to expose ourselves to what God has revealed about himself and his ways when we wisely place ourselves under the lordship of Jesus, then the empowerment of the filling of the Holy Spirit is free to reign all to the glory of God the Father. And so it's here that Paul begins to give us several important means to being filled with the Spirit ways in which we actually function as the living temple of God, individuals who collectively make up the church, how can we be filled with his glory that the nations can actually see? And this list that Paul gives us, it's not exhaustive. It doesn't capture every way that this can be done, but it does capture some really important ones. And so I'm going to finish up by just covering these few points with us this morning. First, Paul says that we'll be filled with the Spirit as we continually are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms is a largely Jewish term. It, it would have been familiar to anyone who was familiar with temple worship. 
Hymns, it's interesting, is a largely Gentile or Greek term. It actually was used mostly in Greek poetry and mostly to point towards the gods and goddesses that Greeks and pagans and Gentiles worshipped. In fact, in Ephesus, where Paul was writing this letter, uh, there's, there's, there's evidence that there was a guild, almost like a union of hymn writers, and their only job was to write hymns to pagan Greek gods. That was what they did. And then finally, songs. It's, it's a more general term. It would have been probably useful and familiar to both Jews and Greeks. And I suspect Paul used this combination to commend a variety of forms of, of musical styles because his was a multicultural church, just like Redemption Hill is a multicultural church. But the one common denominator that they would all share is that they would be spiritual. They'd be inspired by the Holy Spirit to point towards the risen Christ and what he's accomplished in the lives of his followers. And so Paul says that this regular act of coming together with other believers to worship God and to sing praises to his name, it's one of the most important means that the church has of being filled by the Spirit. See, we recognize that God desires to meet his people and to strengthen them by his Spirit as they corporately worship him and praise his name. And this echoes, this isn't new to Paul. This actually echoes many, many, many portions of Old Testament scripture. One, for example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, says this, the trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. They raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, he is good. His love endures forever. And then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Did you catch that? The glory of the Lord was so intense that the priests couldn't even perform their service. They were overwhelmed in the presence of God. And, and, and furthermore, Paul lets us know in this admonition that the singing of praise, it's always directed towards God as sort of the primary recipient, but there is a horizontal effect. For the people of God hear one another sing praises to God. Our hearts are encouraged. Our hearts are strengthened to know him more clearly, to love him more dearly, and to follow him more nearly day by day, to quote Godspell. This is so important that it's one of the major reasons that we need to resist the temptation to worship God alone as our routine. I hear all the time, I was at such and such a beach and I had a great Sunday morning worshiping God. And I believe that we can as individuals worship God. In fact, I think that we should. But you know what you can't do by yourself? You can't corporately worship God by yourself. It's impossible. You have to have me and Henry and Caleb and Dave and Grayson to worship God corporately.
Because that, Paul says, is part of being filled with the Spirit as we praise God for who he is. The people hear that and we are encouraged and strengthened and built up at the same time. I love your Facebook uh, quotes of Scripture. I love them. I like getting texts of encouragement during the week. Keep that up. But we need to come together as the people of God so that we can experience not just this, but all of what God has like this. Second, Paul says that we're to be filled with the Spirit as we continually are singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. He, he essentially repeats some of what he's already declared, but he adds two important emphases. He says that our singing of praise must point towards the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the ultimate recipient of our praise. And it's why here, so much of the music that we sing, regardless of style, is what we call Christological or Christ-centered. And our singing must flow as a heartfelt expression. And the term here, heart, is a Greek word, cardia. It's where we get the word cardiac and cardiology. And for a lot of us, we kind of equate heart with emotion. But for Paul and his audience, heart was much more than that. Heart was the complete inner person. Heart was the emotions, yes, but also the intellect and the will. Heart would alone, emotions alone, is just too limiting. And so we do care about it. I love that we sing some of the strong, uh, theologically clear hymns. We might contemporize them a little bit because we need to hear the truths. My mind has to be engaged in my singing as well as my emotions. We need both of them. For Paul and his hearers, they knew that. Third, Paul says that we'll be filled with the Spirit as we continually give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our singing that I described above, it should be a response of our, our total being to who God is and what he's done. But we need to recognize what he's accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that should result in a constant state of gratitude. In fact, this should be one of the ways we recognize a Christian. It should be a defining characteristic in the life of all believers, not just now, but always. Not just here in Medford, but we're going to spend an eternity with that characteristic. Consider the 24 elders in heaven. They're spoken of in the book of Revelation, and they sing praises to God, and listen what they say. They say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. And Paul says this thankfulness, it should be for everything. Everything? Everything. But John, you don't understand. I have these circumstances. Yeah, I know. D-Day's here, but we haven't finished the war. Life can be hard. We all raised our hand when we said we experienced trials and tribulations. How do you maintain thankfulness in the middle of that? Well, let me tell you about our good friend, Walt. Any of you here know Walt Parmelo? I'll do a long story short. Walt announced and shared a couple of months ago that he has lymphoma. Nobody wants to have lymphoma. I'd say that he's experiencing some sickness. And so as part of that, he's very, very thankful, actually, because the church has been the church. His community group has rallied, and 
individuals have connected and contacted. He has been getting text messages of encouragement, even while his white blood count is so low that he can't join us here on Sunday. But his heart is here. I heard from him this morning. I was stunned when I was out to lunch with him, and he and I and another gentleman who was a three-year survivor of esophageal cancer were having lunch. And he said, you know, John, I never thought I would have ever been able to say this. I'm thankful for my cancer. What? I'm thankful for my cancer. You see, apart from this struggle in my life, I wouldn't have known the presence of God in the way that I've been able to experience it. When I'm sitting in a chemo chair and it's dripping and it's filling up my body, I'm not alone. How could I not be thankful for the fact that cancer took me to that point? He says, John, listen, I'm not an idiot. I suffer, I hate it, I don't like it. I sometimes I'm afraid. But I've never known God like I know him today. And for that, I'm thankful. Imagine a church full of that kind of thankfulness. A thankfulness that our world just doesn't understand. Walter, I'm thankful for you. I haven't suffered a trial like that, to be honest. But I've seen an example, and I hope when the time comes, some time will come in my life. I hope that by God's Spirit, inspired by the witness of my brother, and witnessed by you, I, I pray that I can rally to that point and that I can be thankful always and for all circumstances. And finally, Paul says that we're going to be filled with the Spirit as we continually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Next week, Tanner's going to take us on into Ephesians, and he's going to talk to us about all kinds of relationships that we can find ourselves in. But for today's purposes, let's just acknowledge that a mark of a Christian is an attitude of self-denial and concern for the needs of others. And it's essential within the Christian community when the basic practice of just simply considering other people and rightfully placing their needs above your own is absent, the work of the Spirit now has the freedom to move amongst his people. If our attitudes are those of the fool in Proverbs, arrogance and harshness and impatience and intolerance then we need to put those off and we need to manifest the characteristics of the wise in the way that we relate to each other. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance. And what's our motivation? The reverence of Christ. Just as we were challenged to walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. Chapter 5 begins with the exhortation. Be imitators of God. Love as Jesus loved. Be children of light to a world that is dark. Be wise and not foolish. Be under the control of his spirit, not under the control of anything else. God wants his people to be completely under that influence. And so a significant means is that we commit ourselves to come together for corporate worship. Our faith is not a private faith. 
as believers, we'll engage and submit to each other, and we worship Christ together. And then God, in the midst of that, will continually fill us as individuals, but he'll fill us corporately as his temple, all to his glory. And so let's just commit ourselves to walk in God's wisdom, to walk by his spirit, as together we glorify Jesus. I'm going to invite our worship team to join me on the platform, and they're going to lead us in some psalms and some hymns and some spiritual songs as we get ready, our hearts, right, mind, will, and emotions to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so as we head in that direction, I'm going to ask you together as the family of God here, let's, let's allow his spirit to move freely amongst us. So here's a question. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin? If so, why not confess? Do you need to fully enter into the singing of praises to God? Then why not open your lips? Is there an area in your mind or your will or your emotion that you need to surrender to the lordship of Jesus? Why not yield today? Do you need to give thanks to God even in the face of some really lousy circumstances? Why not choose joy based on who he is? Is it time to submit yourself to someone else or to reconcile yourself to a relationship that is broken? Why not deny yourself? Why not seek wholeness? Let's pray.